Well, if you want to, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible uh, to the different places that are referenced on the top of your outline. Uh, several verses are there in Genesis, a couple passages in Hebrews. Uh, so uh, you can see that on your outline. Go ahead and turn there. And when I get to those passages, uh, you will be ready to follow along uh, as I read. So today we're uh, continuing our series uh, on taking God-inspired risk, a series that I've simply called by faith. And today we're continuing to look at the life of a man named Abram uh, or Abraham. His name was changed uh, to Abraham. Uh, Last week we looked at how God asked Abraham to leave home in order to cooperate uh, with God's plan for his life. Uh, Genesis 12 told how God commanded Abraham to leave his home and promised that Abraham would become a great nation, that God was going to make a great nation uh, out of this man. Uh, It was an interesting promise uh, that God made to him because at the time the promise was made, Abraham and his wife were childless. And there were some real obstacles to them having children. Abraham was old and Sarah was barren. Uh, Real obstacles uh, to having children. Um, We're we're going to look at a number of passages, as I mentioned, a few more than we uh, usually deal with in a single message. And so let's let's look pretty quickly at these. In Genesis 17, 15 through 19, uh, we are told about God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. Uh, Before we read that, let me just kind of recap. God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. He had promised Abraham that he would have a son from his, an heir from his own body in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, when Abraham had pointed out to God that the only person he had that would qualify as an heir uh, was one of his uh, servants. And now here in chapter 17, God is going to again promise a son uh, to Abraham and Sarah. And here's what it says. Verse 15. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born of a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. They are still childless. Even though God had promised years before that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah very well understood the obstacles before them. They understood the obstacles so much that they had tried to work work this deal out for themselves. They had, they had tried to figure out a way to, to bring about the promise in their own strength. And so uh, Sarah had said to Abraham, why don't you go and, and father a child with my maidservant Hagar? 
And, uh, and, they, and they did that. And God says to them that Ishmael, the son that resulted from, from their efforts to, to work out God's uh, plan, uh, Ishmael would not be the son that the blessing would come through. But rather a son was going to be born to Sarah, and that would be the son that the blessing would come through, that would make Abraham a great nation, and that would give us the Savior uh, of the world. Now, in spite of the obstacles to this becoming reality, Genesis 21, 1 through 3 tell us that God kept his promise to them, and a son was born to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Here's what it says. Uh, 21, 1 through 3. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Everything that we are going to talk about today revolves around this child that had been promised to Abraham and Sarah. And I think it's appropriate that our series brings us to this story today, as this is the day that churches all around the country have recognized as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which commemorates the disgraceful Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, that legalized abortion in this nation. For those of you who may be newer to our church, we, we try largely here to avoid controversial and political issues upon uh, which sincere Christians can legitimately disagree. But this is an issue that we feel we need to speak out on. And before I go any further with that, let me just recognize that I know this is a sensitive issue, and I understand that many people's lives have been touched by abortion. I recognize this because I know some of your stories. I also recognize this because I just know, statistically speaking, in a a group of people of any size, a group of people this size, there are a number of people whose lives have been touched by abortion. Uh, To you who have been touched by abortion, we want to speak very clearly here at Vineyard Pataskala. God loves you and we love you. We know that you have experienced incredible pain because of your decision. And we hope and we pray that you have found healing in Christ. And that if you have not to this point found healing in Christ, that you would. It is available to you. God wants to heal you from that experience. And so that is our prayer for you, that God would provide healing and that And that if you would allow us, we would even have an opportunity to to be ministers of that love and healing to you. But I hope that you can appreciate that we can love and support people touched by abortion and still say the things clearly that need to be said on this topic in our day and our time. We speak very clearly on abortion here because I do not view abortion as a political issue. I view abortion as a moral issue. I believe, in fact, that it is the moral issue of our time. And I have to be honest with you. I do not believe that there is room for legitimate debate and disagreement among Christians on the topic of abortion. I just don't. So, we'll leave you to draw your own conclusions on Labor disputes. 
You can draw your own conclusions on immigration issues. You can draw your own conclusions on environmental stewardship. We'll talk about those things, but we'll understand that sincere Christians are going to come to different places on a whole host of topics. But friends, on this topic of abortion, we will speak very clearly and and we will do so because I believe, and I believe it is objectively true, that it is inconceivable to be a pro-choice Christian. I do not believe that Scripture can conceive of a pro-choice Christian. I do not believe that God conceives of a pro-choice Christian. I find it bewildering and I find it offensive that in a nation where 78% of the population self-identifies as Christian, that in the past 40 years, we have permitted 54 people to have their lives ended in the first nine months of their existence. Friends, you can try to sanitize this in your mind all you want. You can try to put it out of your mind all you want. But here is the fact. A nation with 78% of people saying they are Christians is tolerating something that should not be tolerated. And I, friends, am tired of acting like abortion and the people who support abortion, including the Christians who support abortion, I'm tired of acting like these things are reasonable and that they are civilized. Abortion is neither reasonable nor civilized. And it is time that the church of Jesus Christ find a way to stand up and say, we aren't going to tolerate this anymore. Consider what Genesis 21 says about the birth of Isaac. It says that through Isaac's birth, quote, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Children are a gracious gift from God to us. That's what children are. The 127th Psalm tells us that children are a reward from the Lord. A reward. Some of you may be having difficulty having children. And my wife and I experienced that pain for 11 years. And my prayer for you today is that as your heart cries out for children, that God would hear you today. As he heard Hannah's prayer, if you're familiar with that story. And as he heard Sarah's heart's cry. And that he would give you the children that you desire. That he would be gracious to you in that way. And further prayer I have on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. A prayer that I would encourage each and every one of you here today who call Christ Lord to adopt. Is that God would restore our nation. That God would restore to the men and women of our nation. The belief that children are a gift from God. The belief that children are a reward from the Lord. The the belief that children are a gracious gift from God 
to us. I pray that God would restore that to us as a people. I pray that he would restore to us the understanding that children are always a gracious gift. When they are a surprise, they are a gracious gift. When money is tight, they are a gracious gift. When the circumstances of their being here are not what we would have picked, they are still a gracious gift from God to us. May the hearts of our people believe this again. May the lies of the evil one be exposed and may we believe what is right again. That is my prayer for this church. That is my prayer for our nation. God, may we believe what is right on this topic again. Remove the blinders from our eyes. Help us to see what we're really doing. With our remaining time, I want to direct our attention to how Abraham persevered in faith as he awaited the fulfillment of God's promise of a son. And then I want to look at how Abraham was obedient to God when God made a very shocking demand on his life. You know, if we're going to be those people who who take God-inspired risks, as we've been talking about, we're going to have to be people who follow in the footsteps of Abraham and are willing to persevere. Between last week and today, we have uh, either read or referenced uh, God's promise that he would make a great nation out of Abraham, God's assurance to Abraham that he would have an heir from his own body, God's promise that the uh, son who is the promised son would be born of Sarah. And then we read just a few minutes ago the fulfillment of the, the birth of Isaac. Hebrews says in 11, 11, and 12, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand of the seashore. One of the things that's really easy to miss in this story, whether you're reading in Genesis or whether you're reading this commendation here in Hebrews, is the amount of time that passed from God's promise to make Abraham a great nation until the time that he had a son and then his son also had children. When God made the promise to Abraham that he was going to be a great nation, Abraham was 75 years old. Isaac was not born until Abraham, I mean, these numbers are a little debatable on the exact numbers, but roughly Abraham would have been around 100 years old. 25 years. Isaac did not marry until he was about 40 years old. And he didn't have children, Jacob and Esau, until he was 60 years old. Abraham had Isaac at 100, did not have grandchildren until 160. He died at 175 The grand total of his descendants at 175 years old was one 75-year-old son and two 15-year-old grandsons. 100 years of faith, 
100 years of perseverance, what's he seen? He has seen extremely modest progress toward the fulfillment of the promise. Itsy bitsy progress toward the fulfillment of the promise. He's not a great nation. He's got three descendants. And Hebrews 11.13 points out that Abraham never saw the the complete fulfillment of uh, what was promised to him. He only saw and welcomed the fulfillment from a distance, is how Hebrews tells us. But in spite of the fact that he, he saw the beginning of the fulfillment, but he, 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 didn't see the, he didn't see the thing really blossoming. In spite of the fact that he did not see that, Romans says of Abraham, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith. He gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. If we are going to be people who are willing to take God-inspired risk, we have to be people who are willing to persevere in faith for the long haul. For the long haul. We're going to have to be people who are thoroughly convinced of God's promises, believe in them enough that we will hold on to them, even if they take years and years and years to be fulfilled. Even if they are not entirely fulfilled in our lifetimes. Faith. Substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. So we've read of God's promise to Abraham. We've read of the birth of Isaac, the the beginning of the promise being fulfilled. But then we come to a part of the story that shocks us. A part of the story that frankly repulses us. That stuns and confuses us. Look at Genesis 22, 1 and 2. And then we'll slip down to verses 9 through 14. Here's what we read. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Then go to verse 19. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. 
Now, if you are reading this story for the first time, or even if you've read it before, but you tried to put it out of your mind, you are probably confused, and you are probably really put off by this story. And and it's understandable that you would have that reaction to this story. It's it's debatable how old Isaac was when this uh, event takes place. Tradition says he was an adult when it happened. Jewish tradition does. Uh, But the language of the text seems to imply that he was actually pretty young, still a child. Uh, William MacDonald estimates that he was likely a teenager, perhaps somewhere around 17 or so. And this does not compute with us. It, it just doesn't compute. Uh, a person who said God told them to do such a thing uh, would be committed to an institution for the mentally ill. Uh, anyone who tried to carry out such a command would face criminal charges of the most serious kind, and, and rightfully so. But one of the things that we have to be careful about here is that our sensitivities to this story are such that we can often get hung up on the shocking nature of the command and miss the point of the story. And so we have to be careful not to do that. And some of the things that I think can help us not to do that are, are this. First of all, we have to understand that while this is shocking to us, this command would not have been uh, shocking to Abraham in quite the same way as it is to us. In the Canaanite worldview that Abraham would have been familiar with, The God who provided fertility, not not the real God, but uh, one of the false gods that provided fertility, was also entitled to demand a portion of what had been given, what had been uh, produced. And so this was uh, expressed in the sacrifice of animals and grain, and tragically it was expressed in the sacrifice of children. In Abraham's day... It was considered the right of the deity to ask for this kind of sacrifice. Notice that Abraham doesn't really object. He doesn't really question. Human sacrifice was familiar to Abraham's worldview. And so he is not dumbfounded by God's command. The command is emotionally harsh because Abraham loves Isaac. God acknowledges the the, the difficulty of the command, the the harshness of the command, uh, because he he, uh, points out, I'm asking you to do this to your son, your only son, whom you love. But it was primarily baffling to Abraham because it didn't compute with God's promise to make him a great nation. God was speaking to Abraham and requiring something of Abraham that would have been culturally understandable to Abraham. Didn't mean he liked it, didn't mean he uh, agreed with it, but at least it was culturally understandable uh, to him. And so that's one of the first things that you need to understand as you uh, process your objection to the story. And here's the second thing and probably the more important thing that you need to understand in processing uh, your objection to the story, and that is this. And I think Jarrell made this point a few weeks ago in a message he preached. God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Never intended for him to do that. This was a test of Abraham's loyalty. God never intended for this to to move forward. 
Now, you can object to the idea of God testing people. You cannot like that idea. But he's God. And if he wants to test us, he will test us. And God tests people throughout the Bible. We, we see this over and over again. We uh, see it with Abraham. We see it with Job. God is God. And he can test our love for him. He can test our loyalty to him if that's what God decides he wants to do. We live in a time when we have created a God in our, in our own minds, in our own image. And so anytime the Bible doesn't compute with what we think God ought to be, we just discard that. And so we decide that the God we want to serve really shouldn't test people. So we act like he doesn't. When in fact, the God that is sometimes will choose to test you. To see if you really love him. To see if you are really loyal to him. But again, the point is that God never intended Abraham to make the sacrifice. Never. Human sacrifice was, is abhorrent to God. The the biblical prophets and the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus make it very clear that even though this happened in the ancient world, God was greatly displeased with it. The fact that the uh, prophets and the uh, laws uh, speak to it, though, tell us that the practice did occur. It it did continue. And so you you may still struggle with the story to some extent, but at at least you need to understand that God was speaking in a way that would not have struck Abraham quite like it does us. And God never intended for Abraham to actually make the sacrifice. He simply wants to know... Where does Abraham stand in his relationship to God? And this is where our focus should be, where our energy should be in trying to understand this story. And there are several quick things we can take from the story. I want to cover three of them, hopefully quickly. In commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, God is requiring Abraham to surrender the thing that is dearest to him to God. Both Genesis and Hebrews drive home this point that God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. You say, now what happened to Ishmael? Well, by this point, Ishmael and Hagar had been sent away. But whether that had been the case or not, for the purpose of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac was it. There was no other son that was going to fulfill the promise. Genesis drives home the point even more. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac is the promised child. He is the one and only promised child. He's the one that has been waited for since Abraham and Sarah were married, but specifically waited for for the 25 years since God had made the promise that Abraham would be a great nation. This boy is precious to these two people. He is what is dearest in the whole world to them. And God says, you have to surrender him to me. Friends, the Bible reveals to us from beginning to end that God is the only one that we can worship. The only one who deserves our worship. 
Here's another thing that we don't like, so we've kind of like written out of the Bible, but the Bible makes it very clear that God is a jealous God. He's jealous. He doesn't want you serving anyone or anything other than him. He, he doesn't want anything in the whole world to be dearer to him, uh, to, to you, than he is. He's a jealous, jealous God. You may not like that. You may react against that. But that's what the Bible reveals to us. The Bible lets us know that God expects nothing to be higher on our priority list than he is. Jesus followed this up in the New Testament. He, he taught us the very same thing in the New Testament. He said things like this, anyone who loves mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. And we say, well, okay. My son says, okay. <laughs> Didn't like that decision. Okay. I can do that. But then he hits us hard. And says something we don't want to hear. I'll be honest with you. I push back against this reality every time. I have to allow God to do work in my heart almost every time that I really press into this truth. He hits us with this. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then we say, now hold on, Jesus. That is asking too much. How can you ask me to love you more? How can you do that? Aren't you asking something that I can't give? Aren't you asking something that is too much? And he says he's not. He required Abraham to surrender what was dearest to him, his son, his only son. It's said that John Bunyan was haunted at times by the toll on his family of his ministry. He was especially troubled by the toll that it was taking on a, a little blind daughter of his. And he wrote one time that he felt that his calling was pulling down his house on the head of his wife and children. And he said that he considered all this. He was greatly troubled by it. And he writes, yet I thought I must do it. I must do it. Now, there's a lot that we can debate about that little story. But the simple point that I want to make with that story is that God does not permit us to value anything more than him. In the words of the famous song, Oh, for a closer walk with God, says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. 
what air that idol be. Friend, God required Abraham and he requires us to have nothing dearer to us than him. Not only that, but God is asking Abraham, in addition to surrendering what is dearest to him, he is also asking Abraham to fully entrust his future to God. Even when what God is commanding makes no sense in light of the promise. Think about it. Abraham's 117 to 120 years old. Promised son is probably about 17. The fulfillment of God's promise presupposes a future for Isaac. God himself said, here's your future. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. This is your future. This is how I'll make you into a great nation. No Isaac, no descendants. No Isaac, no great nation. The future that God had promised Abraham is entirely wrapped up in Isaac. And God says, take Isaac out and surrender him up to me. Take your future out to Mount Moriah and kill it. Take the promise I gave you out to Mount Moriah and kill it. To be obedient to God Abraham seemingly needs to destroy the only hope he has for the promise being fulfilled. Incredible. Against all reason, against all common sense, God calls him to fully trust his future to God. He has to surrender what's dearest. He has to trust his future against all common sense. And then there's more. Abraham has to obey God with nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. Think, think about what God has done in calling Abraham up to this point. He, he started out by saying things like this. Abraham, leave home and I'll make you a great nation. Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And I'll make your descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore. God had required a lot of Abraham already, but there had always been some benefit for the obedience. Here, there is no promised benefit. God commands obedience with no benefit. God commands obedience without there being any reward for being obedient. Up to this point, has Abraham's faith been truly motivated by his love for God or was it motivated by personal gain? Well, we know the Bible's commendation of him, so we know the answer to that. But as it's happening, you don't know. Up to that point, you don't really know which is true. But now God's going to find out. Does Abraham trust and obey because he wants to be a great nation? Or does Abraham trust and obey because he loves God? The answer in this case is that Abraham is willing to give up all that he stands to gain, all that he loves, and all that he hopes for. He was willing to obey God when it looked like there was nothing to gain for doing so. He was willing to obey God 
when the only thing he was going to get out of obeying God was heartache. He had to obey, understanding he got nothing in return. Here's how Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 commends Abraham on this point. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now notice he didn't actually offer Isaac as a sacrifice. He got credit. Didn't actually do it. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Hebrews, recommend, uh, Hebrews recognizes what a, what a big deal this is, what a difficult command this was to obey. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So here's the deal. Abraham had so much confidence in God, so much confidence in God's ability to make good on his promise that he was willing to do so, even if it meant sacrificing his son, because he reasoned that God could bring the boy back from the dead. So Abraham's faith was such that he believed one way or another, God will deliver on his promise. But friends, the point here still stands. Because obedience to the command did not get him anything more than he already had. He had to obey with nothing to be gained through the obedience but uncertainty and heartache. Abraham is commended as the father of faith because he modeled the kind of faith that pleases God. Here's the kind of faith that pleases God. It perseveres until the promise is fulfilled, no matter how long it takes. It surrenders what is dearest. It pulls all other false gods off of the throne. It fully entrusts the future to God. And it obeys even when there's nothing to gain. In this series, we're focusing on taking God-inspired risk. And I want you to consider a few questions today. What would be different in your life? What risk might you be willing to take if you practice the kind of faith that we've seen in Abraham today? If you practice a faith that persevered until the promise was fulfilled, no matter how long it took, what hope could be reclaimed in your life that you let go of maybe years ago? You could reclaim hope for the salvation of a loved one who's rejected Christ for years. You've prayed. You've not seen any progress. This kind of faith that Abraham has allows us to reclaim hope for those folks. You could reclaim hope that your marriage could be restored, even if it's been dead for as long as you can remember. You could reclaim hope that the ministry you believe God placed in your heart years ago could still come to fruition 
you could reclaim that hope. Maybe you've given up on it. But if you follow in the footsteps of Abraham and have this kind of faith, that kind of that, that, that hope can be reclaimed. You could reclaim hope that the chronic illness you have suffered could yet be healed. How would your life be different if you really didn't hold anything dearer than God? What would you do differently if you honestly loved God more than anything else? You could celebrate your grown child's decision to be a missionary rather than resent the fact that your dream of having all your family in one place isn't going to be a reality. You could celebrate that if God is dearest. You would care less about your children taking advantage of every single academic and athletic and extracurricular activity that is ever offered anywhere in the tri-state region And just for the record, we're not actually in the tri-state region because we're in the middle of the state. So I know how far people will go to, to, to get the precious ones involved in everything. But instead of that, you would care, and I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody here, you would care more about instilling a love for God, His Word, and the church into your child. You could be freed from the perhaps debilitating disappointment that you feel because you had career aspirations that you never attained. And you could be satisfied that God is enough for you. Yeah, life didn't turn out like I thought it would. I, I did not become the, the, the person I thought. I, I didn't achieve the things I thought. I didn't attain the financial success I thought I would. But you know what? God is enough for me. If he's dearest, then that's the difference it can make in your life. You can be freed from debilitating disappointment. What if you fully trusted God with your future? What would you do that now you shrink back from because you're afraid? You're, you're failing to trust. You're, you're afraid to trust. You could worry less about money if you truly trusted God with the future. You could be freed from all kinds of fears if you fully trusted the future to God. You could take that risk of sharing your faith with your neighbor if you fully trusted the future to God. You could pursue a dream that the odds seem stacked against if you fully trusted God. You might decide to be a missionary if you fully trusted God with the future. You might see your marriage healed if you fully trusted and released your future to God. You stopped keeping options open. You, 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 you stopped hedging your bets and you just were all in. No matter what the future looks like, God, I know you'll be there with me. So I'm all in to this marriage. 
What if you obeyed God even if there didn't appear to be any benefit in doing so? What if you obeyed with nothing at all to gain? You might scale back your lifestyle intentionally because you want to have room to give more. You might serve in a ministry that is not easy, something you find challenging, something that doesn't float your boat. Friends, let me just say, I get it. I understand. I know all about serving in your area of gifting. I get that. We want you to do that. We don't want to make you miserable in the church. But can I tell you that I think the Christian church has taken this whole thing about I can only serve in the area of my gifting where I just feel sheer joy all day long because I'm doing this. I think the church has taken this a little too far. Here is the truth. Sometimes God will call us to do hard things. And here's the truth. Even if you are serving in your area of gifting, much of it will still be hard. It's not going to be easy. Everything is not pleasurable. If you're willing to obey God with seemingly nothing to gain, you'd walk away from your favorite sin. We keep buying the lie that sin really has something for us. Can't let go of it, then what? What what am I going to do if I don't have that thing to go to? What What am I going to do if I don't have that comfortable home to fall back on? Obeying with seemingly nothing to gain is what God requires of us. All of these things are risky. On some level, they they require a willingness to take some risks. And we can do that. We can take these risks when we live by faith. When we trust God's sovereignty and are firmly convinced of what he's called us to. We can have that kind of faith that perseveres no matter what. That surrenders what's dearest. That fully trusts our future and that obeys with absolutely nothing to gain. Church, this is the kind of faith that pleases God. And in increasing measure, my prayer is that it is the kind of faith that I'll practice. And it's the kind of faith you'll practice. Why don't you stand